Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. In this episode, psychological safety, emotional agility, and energy management for lawyers. Tanya, Angie, and Mary Ellen speak with Julie Bosey and Valerie Federici of Level Up Legal. They talk about coaching in the legal industry and the way that the skills of the law can run counter to the skills of well-being. These patterns develop for a reason, and they're very helpful professionally. The problem arises when you apply them outside of where they may be helpful. And so, for example, only looking for risk in your personal life is a recipe for not connecting with other people. They also get into how the work of building emotional well-being dovetails with the work of DEIB. That's kind of what psychological safety is. Is it okay to take risks? Is it okay to admit that you made a mistake? Is it okay to have an opinion that differs from the group? And when you have a higher level of energy, it's very much an abundance mindset. You welcome differing opinions. You welcome diverging perspectives. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Tanya Martinez-Galanucci. Welcome back to Building Belonging. Today, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite topics with some of my favorite people. If you've been following along on social media or just following our stories on, on our newsletters, I've spoken quite a bit about coaching and how it's changed and saved my life in many ways. And I did that on another podcast with another coach. And today I get to talk to my coaches. And so we're going to dive right in because we have so much to share. We don't have time for this. I am Tanya Martinez Galanucci. I'm the executive director of the office, handing it over to my girl, Angie. And you know the rest. Hello, I am Angie Avila Lanciati. I am the development and communications manager with the office. And I'm going to throw it over to my friend over here. And I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa, and I'm the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator for ODEEB. I'm going to pass this over to our guests today. If you could just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what belonging means to you. Hi, I'm Julie Bosi. I'm a certified professional coach who works with high-achieving lawyers to be more intentional, balanced, and fulfilled. And I have the distinct honor and pleasure of coaching the amazing Tanya Martinez-Galanucci. I am a big fan of this podcast for so many reasons, including that I vividly remember one of Tanya's very first coaching sessions where she had just come from a law firm mentoring initiative and she was worried that she shared too much of herself and that her story, her lived experience might be a burden for others to take in. And so she was sort of processing and ruminating about that. And now she is co-hosting a podcast where she is not only living her true story out loud, but has created a platform for others to do the same and especially to center and amplify marginalized voices. And it's just beyond incredible. And I say that to say, I knew this question was coming about what does belonging mean to you? And so I've thought a lot about it. And I would say that to me, belonging is feeling seen and regarded as valued and accepted. And I really view belonging and psychological safety as going hand in hand, like two sides of the same coin, because it's only when you have that, that sense of belonging and the security that comes along with it that you can be who you truly are and freely share ideas and reveal aspects of your identity with others and not only fit into and exist within the spaces that you navigate, but really come alive within them. So my response about what belonging is to me, and I'll pass it over, I guess, to Val. Hi, I'm Valerie Federici. I'm also like Julia, a certified professional coach. And I coach lawyers and other folks who sort of self identify as left brain analytical types. And I coach them to increase meaning and fulfillment and joy in their lives and their work. And to piggyback on Julie's definition of belonging, I think of belonging as sort of the campfire, you know, are you sort of from you know, caveman times, like, are you in the campfire circle? Do you belong here? Do you belong in this group, in this family, in this place, or not? Are you sort of outside the the campfire circle? And I think in the in the coaching context, and in the, you know, modern workplace context, belonging really requires feeling like you belong really requires knowing yourself, knowing who you are, knowing 
your values in particular. And Julie said feeling seen. I think the other side of knowing who you are then is feeling seen, feeling like you're recognized within a place, within a group. And so I'm so excited to be here and talking to you all today about belonging in the coaching context and the diversity context more broadly. And just before we go on, we want to just presence our third partner in our partnership. Lauren Cohen is the third leg of our triangle. Well, thank you both for being here. And honestly, I know folks can't see us, but I'm just like smiling ear to ear, just cheesing. Because just listening to these women talk just inspires me every single time. And even in just your introductions and and who you are and what belonging means to you, I'm just like, this is so great. But I think we need to fill in folks on what it is that coaching is, right? What is coaching? What is it particularly in the legal industry? Because this is really what we're here to talk about. And what brought you to it? Yeah. So I'll take that one first and then Julie can build on. Coaching can be very abstract. I think people kind of feel like they don't have a sense of what it is because it's so highly bespoke to the coachee. And fundamentally, coaching is a process of inquiry. The coach holds space for the client and guides them through a process of self-inquiry through very structured and typically empowering questions. So essentially, it's a dialogue between the coach and the client. And it can be about basically whatever topic you want to work on. There are all different types of coaching. But within the legal industry, I think historically, coaching had been seen as a way of fixing something that was wrong. You know, it was sort of perceived as remedial. And there was maybe a little bit of a stigma around being coached because the idea was maybe that you were being coached to fix something. And really, in the last five years, we've really seen an explosion of which in many other contexts has been very, you know, widely used, particularly executive coaching within big corporations and very successfully, and it doesn't kind of have that same perception. And so in the last five years, I think we're really seeing it take off and particularly with senior folks, but I think it's becoming more widely accessible, particularly within law firms. Just to provide some context, before becoming a coach, I worked with an attorney development at a global law firm. And the responsibilities that I held within that role, one of the responsibilities was to coordinate coaching engagements. And this was about 10 years ago when it first started. And at the time, coaching wasn't as broadly socialized and recognized as it is now. So I coordinated coaching very dutifully, but I wasn't completely sure what was happening within those sessions, (laughs) but I saw the result of them. I saw the impact that they left. And I saw, I noticed that the lawyers who'd been coached seemed lighter and more present and more self-assured during and after their coaching engagements. And at a certain point, I remember thinking, well, I don't want to be here on the periphery. I want to be doing that, catalyzing that change. And I still didn't completely understand what it was but I want it in. And so that's what led me to to coaching. I think that coaching, as Val mentioned, it is highly bespoke. And people come to coaching for a broad variety of reasons. And the term coaching really comes from a stage coach, which is essentially helping to transport someone from where they currently are to a destination. And maybe they could get there on their own, but maybe they can't. Maybe they're blocked. And so that could look like a lifestyle transition that they want to be making, a career transition that they want to be making, wanting to speak up more in meetings or inhabit a leadership posture, whatever it may be that they want to do, but they're not exactly sure how to do that. It feels easier said than done. And so when we come in as coaches, we help to figure out why it's easier said than done, and then work with clients to get to their ideal destination. And just one quick add on, Julie, just because I know you so well. You also have a social worker's background. Mm -hmm. Did that influence your decision to go into coaching? Or does that affect the way you coach in any way? By way of background, I was on a very linear path to become a therapist. And so I went straight from undergrad to grad school and I got my master's in social work and it was all, it was a clinical social work program. So it was all about managing emotions and learning how to engage with and move through heavy emotions and mental health and well-being. And then I had sort of an existential crisis and realized that wasn't the role for me. And I 
a series of events led me to work within this law firm. But my professional training is all in mental health and well-being. And so those weren't topics that were necessarily discussed within the law firm context. And they are now more so. I think that they there there's change that's happening. But back then, if somebody wasn't doing well professionally, I don't think that stress and well-being were part of the equation. It was more about sort of the substance, the substantive skills. And so I kind of checked my mental health and well-being or tried to check that training at the door until I realized that we are integrated humans. We all have mental health and it exists on a spectrum. And so, yes, it is front and center within the coaching work that I do. So that brings me to my question. So thank you so much for that amazing transition. How does lawyers training impact their actions and subsequently their feelings about themselves and others? That's a great question. Two topics come to mind here. And the first relates to negativity bias. And the second relates to emotional agility, which is essentially the ability to experience and move through heavy emotions as opposed to getting hooked or stuck in them and as opposed to attempting to avoid them entirely or bypass feelings to get to solutions. So on the first point, the negativity bias, all humans have a hardwired negativity bias. And it's a way to essentially scan the environment to look out for what is or could be harmful. And beyond that, lawyers have a very well-established negativity bias that is reinforced constantly within the practice of law. So lawyers are trained to look for what's wrong, what's missing, what's not being said in a markup or in an argument in court, how something could be used against a client to think several steps ahead. And it's one of the reasons that lawyers are often risk averse because the calculus is naturally weighted towards all that could go wrong. And as a related point, it can also be hard for lawyers to stay in the present moment because the focus on anticipating and getting ahead of and minimizing risk is something that's constantly circulating in their minds. And so it's something that's specific to the work, but it's not so easy to just turn off when you're not in work mode. And with many of the lawyers we coach, there's not even a distinct line between being in work mode and not being in work mode because it's no longer a work-life balance, it's work-life blur. And so because (laughs) of this, the negativity bias can really impact your overall lens and it can lead to a great deal of just skepticism or even cynicism. And we really believe as coaches that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. So to put this into perspective, we all wrap stories around things all the time. And so if you naturally have a negativity bias, the story you're going to be telling yourself where there's any type of ambiguity is naturally going to be relatively negative. So if you don't get a response to an email, your default is likely to create a story that jumps to something negative about how the recipient feels about you or feels about your work product. So we work with lawyers on how to strategically manage that negativity bias without becoming overly optimistic or detached from reality or losing their edge as a lawyer. That's a big first point. The second is emotional agility, which is the ability to manage heavy feelings by experiencing and moving through them without getting stuck or hooked by them or avoiding them entirely. So there's a big focus in the law on being rational and logical, no room for emotions, and not just as it relates to the legal work, but as an overall ecosystem. And I experienced this in a pretty profound way because of what you just mentioned, because Before working in attorney development, I was in this field that was rooted in processing emotions. And then I moved into an industry where it seemed that emotions were professionally disqualifying. And so there was this tendency to project a calm and cool and even keeled professional veneer, regardless of what was going on on the inside, which is known as emotional dissonance. And that's a huge energetic drain. And so many of our clients who have low energy, and we haven't really spoken about the specific coaching framework in which we're trained, but it's all energy management. And so many of our clients who have low energy based on how we assess energy, they have low energy, but nobody would know it. 
So they're not outwardly lethargic. They're high achieving. They're high performing. It's just that on the inside, they feel an entirely different way. And because of this, this dissonance between what's going on on the inside, devaluing the internal experience, sometimes as a defense mechanism because they don't know how to manage emotions or they're afraid to get stuck in them. So many of our clients think they're alone in how they feel. And so that's one of the main reasons we decided to go into this venture with Level Up Legal. And we'll talk more about that soon, I'm sure. Thank you so much for starting us off. And I know, Valerie, you probably have a lot to add. But I just wanted to chime in here because, well, first of all, I'm going to just like embody all the things you just said. (laughs) Hearing you, I was just like, oh, my God, I feel attacked. This is me. And like then I'm just like, oh, wait, it's because I'm a lawyer and I am trained to think about this this way. And look how far I've come. But it's hearing that last part about the outward looking presence of a person and the inward. I mean, you described it so well and and that dissonance. And I want to add, and I'm speaking for myself here as a person of color, as a woman, as first generation, everything in these spaces, that dissonance was compounded with moral injury as well, right? Like when the things I valued, the things I cared about didn't seem to align with what I was doing or the overall like master narrative of the org. It was even more of a separation. And like you said, like I'm a high achiever, right? I'm very charismatic. I'm funny. So people would never know without digging in a little bit deeper. And I think that's what's so powerful about this experience and what folks can think about because only you know what you're going through. Right? Only you know what it feels like inside. And so please, if this resonates, if you're hearing this and you're like, whoa, that's me, there's help out there. <laughs> and you're going to learn so much right now. Okay, so I'm going to pass it on to Valerie. Yeah. And actually, I only have a little bit to add on to it because you guys both have really nailed it so much. And I would just say I'm also a lawyer. And so even hearing Julie describe it, I also feel very seen, right? In terms of like, yes, I do all of this. And I think Julie, Lauren, and I are also passionate about this because we experienced it firsthand. Lauren and I are lawyers and Julie was, you know, the lawyer whisperer is the lawyer whisperer. For Lauren and I, you know, there's that analogy of like a fish swimming in water and our training as lawyers is the water. We're swimming in it and we don't actually always even realize, although we've done a ton of work and we've professionally articulated all of these things about our training that are helpful and sometimes harmful. And Julie can see the water for what it is, you know, looking from the outside we talked about negativity bias, this risk aversion that's very common in lawyers in both their professional and their personal lives. The perfectionism, you know, that's not necessarily true for everyone, right? For some of those things it is, but for some of them, they're really particular to lawyers. These patterns develop for a reason and they're very helpful professionally in a lot of contexts. Like, we are professional risk spotters. So it's very good to have, you know, in an attunement to where their risk is and in the professional context. The problem arises when you sort of take some of those tendencies that are very helpful in the professional context and apply them outside of where they may be helpful. And so, for example, like only looking for risk in your personal life is a recipe for not connecting with other people, right? Interpersonal relationships are something that you cannot control (laughs) for the most part, and particularly like how, you know, the other people. If you only view everything that comes your way as a risk and you're only focused on the risk, you miss the opportunities. And so lawyers training really helps us professionally, but can hold us back personally, including in the personal aspects of your career, right? Like it often involves risk to try for a new client or switch firms or even speak up in a meeting, you know, for a for a more junior person. So one of the things I think that we do in coaching a lot with lawyer clients is focus on where these tendencies are helping them and where they may be holding them back and where they may be holding them back, helping clients look at how do they want to react in this situation? Do they want to do something different? And getting them comfortable with, as Julie mentioned, the discomfort, right? Getting comfortable with the uncomfortable emotions that come up, holding them and then moving through them. In terms of coaching, what issues or themes are you seeing come up the most? As we said in the beginning, coaching is so bespoke, right? It's so tailored to what the client is going through. So we see clients come to us with Every topic or issue under the sun, right? It could be anything from I want to speak up in meetings more and I'm not anything to like, I really don't think I'm in the right 
role or the right firm or the right career even. I don't, I don't know if I want to be a lawyer anymore. It really is at everything and anything. But when, you, when we really look at what's under the surface, sort of the issue behind the issue or the question behind the question of what people are coming to us with, all these surface level things, all these situations that people find themselves in ultimately come down to bigger and deeper themes. And I think one of the things Julie and I talked about in advance of the podcast when we were reflecting on this is really, you know, coming down to like, do people feel like they belong to the point of the podcast? Do they feel like they're in the right place? Do they feel like they're in the right career? Do they feel fulfilled? Do they feel recognized? Do they feel like they're learning and growing? Am I seen and heard? Well, I think to Tanya's point earlier, when you said, it's me, I'm the problem. It's me. I see myself in this. I think that the self-abandonment that you raised, which is essentially what that is, is that so many of our clients feel exhausted and they attribute that to working a lot mm-hmm. because of that, sacrificing just general foundational aspects of well-being, sleep, you know, eating nutritiously. They think that it's because of that. And it's so often so much more complex. There are so many layers of complexity to why somebody might feel depleted. And often it has a lot to do with the alignment that you have with the work that you're doing, as you referenced. And if you're not noticing that, so what we see a lot is that the lawyers that we'll work with, they kind of did all the things they thought they were supposed to do. They put their heads down. They, they excelled academically. They worked really hard. And they thought that at the end of that or on the other side of that, they would be in this very successful career and they would feel an internal sense of fulfillment. They didn't really reflect on, is this what I want to be doing? It felt very much like, well, you know, I buckled up. I'm on this, I'm on this train and the train is left. And so now I need to continue on this. Very often clients will say that they feel like they're on a hamster wheel and they don't know how to get off of it. Mm. And so one of the first things that we do with clients is an energy assessment. And we really break it down to foundationally what's going on with your energy, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And there's all these different aspects of energy. And so I would just say that many times lawyers come to us to work on something that's relatively focused or discreet, and that's not what we end up working on. It's usually that's sort of a symptom of Mm -hmm. something else. To your point, again, about self-awareness, your self-awareness that you are seeing yourself and what we're referencing, I actually think there are a lot of people who wouldn't see themselves in what we're talking about because they haven't given themselves permission to go there. And so the fact that you're even noticing that with self-awareness, and I'm not just saying this, you know, to be, to be a coach, (laughs) it's true. It's (laughs) like, if you think you don't have growth to do or healing to do, you probably have the most growth or healing to do. And if you are very self-aware of the growth that you have to do, that's wonderful. That's the first step towards getting there. So I wanted to just give some insight to folks who are not used to talking or hearing about energy management. Because I feel like, especially lawyers, like we think about time management, like something tangible, something we can measure, something, you know, you know, has numbers involved. We love that. And I think when we hear energy, we think of like crystals and auras and dancing in the moonlight. And while I am a bruja and I do all those things, you best bet I'm out there with my crystals on a full moon. That's not what we're talking about here. So if you're freaking out and you're like, oh, this energy thing seems a little much. No, we literally mean like your energy, how you feel, whether you feel depleted, whether you're tired, whether you're stretched beyond capacity, whether you feel energized and amped and ready to take on the day and can do those tasks without it being a struggle. We're talking about what you feel, how you feel at the end of your day, at the beginning of your day, when you're in the midst of conflict, right? And that all depends on your capacity to deal with these things based on how your mental health is doing, based on the demands of your time, based on what you're pouring your energy into, what you're doing with your time. And one of the biggest benefits I got out of coaching was understanding the difference between my energy and my time, right? And where I spend my energy, regardless of how much time it takes. And if you have the energy for something you do, and if you don't have the energy for something you don't. And so 
this process really helped me learn that and figure that out. So that was the only other thing I thought maybe we needed to add somewhere. (laughs) I'm so glad that you said that. I'm so glad that you explained that because also this is the world in which we live. So we, we throw around, we throw around words like energy and not everybody is coming at it from the same moment. Sometimes we need to have like a defined terms moment of what exactly do we mean here by energy? And in a big picture, it's, are you moving through life intentionally or is life happening to you? Are you on autopilot? And mm-hmm. then if you if life is happening to you, it's all of those other things. You are not then intentionally walking through life, focusing on how to balance energy expenditure and energy renewal, how to fill up your cup, how to do all of that stuff. You are just in survival mode, trying to make the most of what's going on around you constantly. And so once you really break down what energy is, it's how you're showing up, how you, how effectively you're moving through life, essentially. Yeah, that's right. There's something you said that brought something up for me, something that us and Odeep talk about a lot and, and with other folks. And it's just like the overlap of mindfulness, mental health, and being intentional about DEIB. Because all three of those things kind of require the same practices of slowing things down, reflecting, thinking, doing the things that are going to make you use your best self and judgment on whatever the issue is. I don't even know if I've shared this with you explicitly before, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so many of the very characteristics you guys were just describing are also almost exactly the same characteristics that folks, especially in DEI and in critical race theory, delineate when we're talking about what white supremacy culture is and how it shows up in organizations. And just as a reminder or informant, I, I like was taking a second to pull them up because I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but I want to read them out loud because I feel like it might bring up some stuff for you. Perfectionism, sense of urgency, mm. defensiveness, quantity over quality, worship of the written word, paternalism, power hoarding, fear of open conflict, individualism, <laughs> progress is bigger and more, objectivity, right to comfort, especially if you are being called out. (laughs) But those are all the tenets of white supremacy and how we see white supremacy show up in organizations. And wow, is the overlap extraordinary. (laughs) Which is why I'm saying, like, doing this work, I just can't see how it's not DEIB, right? Like, because it's about everyone belonging. It's about finding your comfort. It's about being safe. It's about psychological safety and your ability to thrive. I'm going to leave it at that in case you have any closing words, but I don't know if anyone else has any questions. Well, I think just to pick up on the point of psychological safety, there's so much really interesting research around psychological safety and how it's so crucial in environments where There's a lot of complexity and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of collaboration. And the legal industry is definitely within that category. And so, and it's a critical factor in connection and connection with the people that you're working with and a connect and connection to the work that you're doing and to your overall motivation and engagement and self-esteem and career satisfaction and psychological safety is sort of what needs to be present before people will ever break out of the status quo. Because the idea is not that everyone is the same, but that differences can coexist. And there's a receptivity to diverging perspectives and experiences that are invited in that can ultimately enhance and elevate the group overall and lead to evolution and expansion and push the envelope. You do that because you feel safe. And I'm curious, actually, have you ever talked about what psychological safety is, because I think we do this a lot. Val and I have checked ourselves where we say these things that we're so used to talking about. And then we're like, do people even know? That's a really good question. I don't know that we have like delve into it deeper than kind of just like anecdotally or, or even just naming it, frankly. The way that I think about it, and maybe there's a formal definition that Val knows. The way that I think about it is it was a concept that was developed by a professor 
at Harvard Business School. And she was looking into the relationship between error making and metrics of team cohesion and performance within hospitals. And she expected that higher performing teams would make fewer mistakes, but she actually found the opposite. Better teams, as described by those metrics, reported more errors than the lower ranking teams based on those metrics. And basically what she realized was it wasn't that they were making more errors, but they were in an environment where it was safe to report those errors as opposed to hiding those errors. And so I think that that's kind of what psychological safety is. Is it okay to take risks? Is it okay to admit that you made a mistake? Is it okay to have an opinion that differs from the group? And when you have a higher level of energy, which is what you were referencing before, I think, Tanya, when you have a higher level of energy, it's very much an abundance mindset. You welcome differing opinions. You welcome diverging perspectives. And you kind of feel like there is room at the table for everyone and everyone can has room to grow. And I know that that sounds very, I don't know, idealistic, but it really is what happens when you have higher energy. When you have lower energy, you are in very often survival or fear mode, and it's a very constricting energy. And so the points that you mentioned earlier, the fear of evolution, the fear of change, wanting everything to be perfect, that flies in the face of any type of true diversity and inclusion and expansion. I will add on my own riff on this, which I'm going to just say is my opinion for I say what it is. But I think that when we talk about psychological safety, so you talked about like the, the the safety to take risks, to not be perfect, to have errors and to have other people know about them so that your sort of errors and mistakes are public and that, that that's okay. You're safe in the sense that there won't be negative consequences. My sort of opinion that's an add-on to that sort of official definition is that, and this comes back to the campfire analogy, like in the workplace context, because what we're talking about is the unsafety, right, is like ultimately getting fired and then losing your source of economic security, which ties to your, you know, housing. You're literally like on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like the, the root security, base security. Am I going to have a house? Am I going to have a roof over my head? Am I going to be able to feed myself and my family? And for some people, they may be supporting others. So it could not even just be your own psychological safety, but the like safety of your entire group or family. I think that in workplaces, in some ways, you're never going to really have true psychological safety because there's never in, in America, right, where we have most, mm. most of the people that are listening to this podcast are at will employees. You can be fired for any reason and, and you may not even know. So I think there's always that backdrop, which it sounds very cynical in a way, but I think is really important, especially for leaders to keep in mind because people, I think there, we work with so many leaders who really truly care about psychological safety and want their team members, want their employees to feel safe. And sometimes that translates itself into like, you know, we talk about like, you know, bringing your whole self to work, like showing up in the fullness of who you are. And sometimes I think leaders get like, you know, discouraged that people won't sort of reveal themselves fully. But I think they need to understand that it doesn't always feel safe, no matter how much you do as a leader, just because of like the nature of work that's different than like, do you feel psychologically safe in your family? Do you feel psychologically safe with your friends in an environment, right? If you walk into a store, like different contexts. So I think work always has that sort of overlay over it. But you went there, Tanya, you know, coaching, coaching has so many overlays here, it can help you with the perfectionism, right with the feeling like as a leader, you always need to have the right answer before you say anything that someone pointing out that something is wrong in the organization, or something is making them feel uncomfortable. That pointing out is not the problem. <laughs> The problem is what they're pointing out, right? So I, yeah, there's just, there's so many ways that coaching has been helpful to me personally in this journey, but also I think can help leaders, can help organizations. One thing that I've noticed, especially coaching so many people of color is the psychological toll of being the only person within a particular marginalized group and that pressure to represent in underrepresented spaces and kind of manage microaggressions or micro invalidations, which may be brushed off in isolation, but sort of the accumulation can be draining and demoralizing and can kind of become metabolized within your nervous system. 
And to do that while still finding the motivation to perform and engage well is something that comes up a lot. I think that it's really tricky because when we talk about psychological safety, I do find that many of my clients, they they do feel that whatever they, people of color specifically, feel that whatever they do is going to be scrutinized more than what perhaps their white male colleague is going to be doing. And it's hard, it's really hard to say whether that's true or not true, but I do think that that's, that's part of the conversation. It kind of has to be part of the conversation. And there is this really delicate balance between wanting to ensure that people feel safe and then not proving that that's true. So saying this is a safe place, you can open up here, and then that not really being the case happens a lot and people get burned and they get then nervous to speak up in meetings. And so I think it is really important for leaders to be aware of that versus kind of thinking that everybody's in the same boat and everybody is equally feeling psychologically unsafe within an environment. There are so, so many layers of complexity. I just want to add that it may seem, based on how we've been talking about this so far, that the role of creating a climate of psychological safety is entirely incumbent upon those within leadership positions. And that is definitely important. I think we would all agree, especially because of the power dynamics at play, that the tone at the top cascades down. And at the same time, there are things that everyone within a professional ecosystem, regardless of role and regardless of seniority level, can be doing on an everyday basis to cultivate a sense of psychological safety with colleagues that furthers diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And I've heard from many lawyers, particularly lawyers within law firms, that they're waiting for lawyers to do more and they feel discouraged that leaders aren't doing more. And while they're absolutely entitled to that, the feeling, feeling stuck and feeling at the effect of someone else's action or someone else's inaction is just a low energy place to be especially if you don't see signs around you that changes in the works. And from a higher energetic state, it becomes clear that there's so much that can be done on an individual basis to develop trust with colleagues that can move the needle towards systemic change. And energy management can absolutely play a role in that. Even just that much that you just explained, Julie, is one, completely in line with my lived experiences, Right. Like, you know what I've been through. You know that it was like a really oppressive place. And I was on toxic teams with toxic leaders. And one of the things that you helped me do was realize that there were always options. Right. There were always choices that I could make that would better position me given the circumstances, even as horrible as they were. And through that, and like kind of being a leader right? And saying, actually, no, this isn't okay. And actually, this person is missing from the conversation. And actually, you shouldn't say that because and you know, getting kind of comfortable with those exercises. I was able to do that one by going through coaching and therapy and and figuring out that that was an option. And it helped not only me, but all the folks on my team, like I very quickly became a leader on my team, then in the org, then in very specific spaces. But by doing that, it also gave others permission to do the same. And, you know, there's power in numbers. And this is a topic that I think comes up a lot in DEI. We're all responsible for culture creation. We're all responsible for whatever environment it is that we inhabit. And yes, it is true that the actual leaders of the org probably have a lot more say and a lot more power, but that doesn't mean you have none, right? And you can create more space and you can create opportunities for yourself, even if it's, you know, creating this so that you can jump ship or whatever, whatever the end goal is, but you don't have to keep whatever is the status quo and and stick with you don't have to be another cog in the machine i guess is is the moral of the story and that's the only thing i'll add to this cuz i think you're 
you know, you've nailed it. That's absolutely right. Psychological safety does not have to be a gift from from good leaders, from, from <laughs> you know, leaders who actually learned about this. It should be, and we want it to be there, but we need change needs to come from all directions and from all folks. Absolutely. That absolutely makes sense. And that is one of the most powerful aspects of coaching is that it, it expands our perimeter of possibility. When you're in a low energy state, you kind of see very often, you see two options and you don't necessarily see all of the other options that could be available to you. You just see change is happening or change is not happening. And that that is the filter through which you see everything. And when you get to a higher level of energy, it's kind of like you're looking through a prism and you start to see, you know, one color is coming in and then all of these other colors are coming out and you start to see that there there are opportunities and places that you might not have been able to see when you were at a lower energy state. So even back when I was working within a law firm in a in a non-legal role and certainly didn't have, wasn't in a leadership role, didn't have a position of power in the way that we would think about it. I attended a communications related training. And after the training, I connected with two of my colleagues, black women who I had gotten close with. And they asked what I thought about the training. And I said, I thought it was great. And I left with practical insights. And I got the sense that they didn't have the same experience. So I asked them, what they thought, and they pointed out that the slide deck, which was filled with lots and lots of professionals, didn't include any black professionals. And that was something that I wasn't attuned to in the moment. And there were two big takeaways for me. And they weren't the importance of being intentional with representation in slides, although that is definitely something that stuck with me and not as a performative gesture, but as a reflection of true diversity and inclusion within a company. The first was what I referenced earlier about how we could all be taking steps to cultivate psychological safety. Those women shared with me their experience. And that was only because of the foundation of trust that we had established outside of that experience. And in a way, I'm projecting and I don't want to make a false equivalence because I don't know what it would feel like within this scenario. But I would imagine that Saying that you felt overlooked or like you didn't belong somewhere required allowing them to be vulnerable. And I just don't think that would have happened if we didn't have the rapport that we did. So, you know, there are things that we can all be doing to authentically get to know our colleagues and that could further without consciously realizing that you're furthering the goal of, I guess I shouldn't say consciously realizing because a lot of this is being intentional. But there are ways that through those intentional steps, other outcomes can be advanced that you didn't necessarily realize in the moment. And I think, you know, I realized after all of this that there are real opportunity costs associated with feeling a lack of belonging to bring it back to belonging. I got to benefit from that training. As a white person, I wasn't thinking about whether or not Someone who looked like me was in a slide deck. It just wasn't part of my frame of consciousness. And that's the privilege that I carry. I was engaging with the information that was on the slides. And I left with actionable insights to further my professional development and, you know, high energy. And that's not what my colleagues left with. And, you know, what's the implication if you're not seeing yourself in slides? What's the story you're going to be telling yourself? As we've discussed, we have a basic human need to try to make sense of the world and how we fit into it with a coherent and cohesive narrative. And we are constantly making interpretations based on our experience and putting together pieces of information to fit into that story. And as Black women watching that training, it wouldn't have been completely irrational to think, I don't belong here. And so a systems approach might say, this is an issue that shouldn't have happened in the first place. And it points to the fact that there is still so much work that needs to be done to get to a place of true diversity and inclusion. And an individual energy management approach wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. It would, though, focus on how, at the end of the day, each of us has very little control about what's happening at a systemic level around us. But we do have control in how we relate to and respond to what's happening around us. So now that this happened, what are you going to do about it? And if you're in a low energy state, the answer is probably nothing. You're going to feel too defeated and too disempowered to move into action mode. But as you raise your level of energy, you start to see how you can 
essentially alchemize challenges into opportunities. And that is where energy management is extremely powerful. This is amazing. I have so many (laughs) observations and reflections about this. I can't help but think what role you played in creating the psychological safety that allowed them to share this with you, right? And I talked about this before on the podcast or on other podcasts, but there is this idea of who can we share these burdens, these issues, these things with. And a lot of times it's like, let's keep it within com- within the right company. Let's be careful who we're talking about this stuff with. I'm not going to be the first person. This is not brand new information, but there is this stigma, especially around white women. I'm literally reading the white women <laughs> book as we speak. And it's because so many times people will raise their hand and say, hey, like, where was I in that PowerPoint? Like, wh- how did you think about diversity? And the reaction was, this is not a real problem. This is in your head. Why can't you just take value out of it, even if there isn't a black person on the side? Just like the gaslighting, like gaslighting across, you know, there's so many things that plays here, right? Like white fragility, normalizing micro and macro aggressions. Like there's just so many things. So I get why these conversations don't happen all the time at every opportunity, because not every opportunity is created equal. Not everyone is an ally, not everyone's accomplice. But if you can figure that out, and if you can find ways to be effective in sending that message to the right people, to the Julies of the world, right, then you have a team, then you have an accomplice, then you have some support, and it doesn't all just fall on you. And I know that that was key for me, especially in the law firm setting. Girl, there was one time where literally we were writing like an open letter and it was, you know, quote unquote anonymous, as, as anonymous as it can be, right? Because how much anonymity do I get when I'm like the one Latina <laughs> in litigation of a certain year? Like I get zero anonymity, right? So there was one time we were writing this open letter and the, you know, the women's group wanted to join in. And I went to the head of the women's group. And I was like, listen, homegirl, I'm gonna need you to use your white privilege and you send this letter, <laughs> not me. Like, I'm tired of taking the brunt of this. I'm tired of being the disruptor. And she was like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And if we had more people like that, you know, I feel like community and psychological safety would be more widespread. You wouldn't have gone to that person, I suspect, unless there was already a foundation there. Like, I think there are so many things that are happening, so many big really horrific, sensationalized things that are happening in the world. And they're not necessarily new. Maybe we have more exposure to them. Maybe they're being discussed more in certain spaces. But I think what that's leading to is a lot of reactivity and not necessarily just proactively developing a foundation of trust with colleagues and people trying to say the right thing and do the right thing. And so and then there's this, okay, now something has happened. So we need to, we need to react. We need to respond as opposed to if you already have a rapport, which it sounds like you probably did with this other woman, then it won't feel like such a burden for you to go to that person. Cause mm-hmm. on you, for you to put yourself out there and ask for somebody else to do something, it feels safer to you. I would imagine, right? That because you knew this person already. Well, you know, what's funny is we weren't even that close, but she had been leaning on me for drafting these letters, for kind of being the spokesperson, not only her, like, I feel like it was just like groups of people, Mm. (laughs) if you remember, there was just like a lot of affinity groups, lots of folks, not everyone is as educated on the issues all the time. Same for myself, right? Like, there's Mm -hmm. lots of things I still need to learn. But because we were working so closely, and I had literally, like, done so much of the drafting, I was like, okay, now here's a way you can be part of the struggle. Here's a way you could be part of the fight if you're really down. And, you know, if she had done something, if she had been like, no, I don't feel comfortable, then I'd have her number, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I'd I'd know exactly what kind of Mm quote-unquote ally she is and I don't have time for those people so I would have pushed her aside but that's not what she did she stepped up to the plate and I really appreciated her for this and I'm like this is really an ally this is really someone who you know walks the walk and talks the talk and I appreciate her for that and it's just it shows you there are ways you can show up there's ways you can use your privilege to you know get ahead on this struggle and to, to move the needle on these issues and I just found it so you know when you were talking about this I'm like well it doesn't surprise me that Julie listened to this and thought, oh, I have so much to learn. And I just wish that 
more folks were like you. Because I feel like it's really easy for folks to get really defensive and be like, no, this isn't a real problem because it doesn't affect them. For whatever it's worth, I think back then, I don't necessarily even thought I thought of myself as an ally, but I wasn't defensive about it. I was Mm -hmm. open to it. And I will say that the person, because I then shared the feedback with the person who delivered the presentation, he was very defensive about it. And so that is that is a big piece of this too, is once information is given to you, then you have a choice. What are you going to do with that information? Are you going to be part of creating change or are you going to defend your actions and keep things where they are? We all have that choice in those micro moments. And I know that we've talked about this before, you know, one of the things that allowed me to feel safe with you, Julie, is that we talked very openly about that day one. You're like, hi, I'm white. I want to is this going to be okay? Because there are yeah. things that I, you know, you're experiencing that I've never done, but I'm willing to learn. And, you know, you have been very gracious in sharing your DEIB journey with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm so thankful because it all like makes sense. Everything we are talking about, all these exercises, even the neuroscience, literally yes. the neuroscience is exactly the same for all three of these things. And I was just wondering if you all had thoughts about that. Sure. So I think that it's worth mentioning that I work primarily with people of color and with many clients who sit at the intersection of multiple marginalized identities. As you mentioned, I'm a white woman, and this is not something that I intentionally sought out, but I do believe wholeheartedly that people are placed on each other's paths for a reason, and I believe that every connection has a purpose, and it has meaning, and I'm so grateful for the diversity within my client base because it's provided me with a unique vantage point and a unique opportunity to grow alongside my clients in different ways than they are. So Tanya, you've grown so much through coaching. I've grown through so much as well, just through the window you've provided to me and to your story. And I really believe that all of our perspectives are inherently limited and they're also limitless. And the only way to expand our perspectives outside of what's naturally within the scope of our lens is by being intentional. And is by engaging with others whose stories are different than ours and learning and growing and seeking knowledge and questioning our default tendencies and thoughtfully curating our news feeds and taking stock of the representation within our children's books and toys and the shows that they watch. And, you know, people don't know what they don't know. And that can lead to, it can lead to an ignorance or a perception that someone knows everything but I know that I don't know what I don't know. And I think that allows for a genuine humility and curiosity. So I'm kind of always leaning in and learning and in growth mode. And as a social worker, I went to Columbia like you did. It was an urban area. I worked within the Bronx. We really learned the importance of being culturally competent or sensitive. I don't necessarily know that I'm particularly competent in any particular culture. I do what one of my clients told me once, the awkward dance of humanity all the time. Every single one of my clients is different. And even those from the same race or the same ethnicity, they're different. And I let them tell me their stories and I view them as individuals against the backdrop of a web of societal barriers and systems of oppression. And so I really believe my clients about their lived experiences and not in a oh, I see how you would think that, and it might lead to that, but it's not really, it's just your perception kind of way that on the one hand is sort of affirming, but is also kind of gaslighting or spiritually bypassing. I'm not trying to make my client's experience fit into my worldview, but it is expanding my worldview a lot. And so I think it's definitely led to just being more intentional overall. I'd love to answer that question too, if I can. I'll try to I'll try to keep it short. But this is so important, right? And I I was a little disappointed when you guys were like, maybe that's a question we would skip. I was like, this is no, this is so important, and it's it's so important to both of us. Building on a little bit of what Julie was saying in the in the last part about not thinking that you know the answer for the client. This is so important because 
One of the things I didn't say when I was describing what coaching is, and one of, and I think this is really important because one of the sort of misconceptions that's out there, or partly I think some coaches describe themselves as, as giving advice. And certainly if you think of the analogy to like a basketball coach, like a basketball coach is going to tell you what to do, right? From personal experience, a professional coach or an executive coach or the type of coaching we do, we do not give advice ever, even if asked by our clients, right? We use our experience to try to have empathy and try to put ourselves in your shoes and kind of understand what you're going through, but we do not advise. And in the connection there and with the diversity piece is that we are not going to tell a client like what they should do about anything. And so one of the most important things for us to do as coaches is to constantly be checking ourselves and putting it back just in like a question to the client, right? Of like, how is this affecting you? What do you want to do here? You know, those type of things. But to come back to the personal diversity, I mean, Julie said a lot of the same things that I would say in terms of my my journey of like really trying to learn, trying to expand my exposure to voices that are different from my experience. But one of the things I think worth just spending a little bit more time on is that neuroscience piece and the like, two sort of aspects of it. One is that systems of oppression or ways of thinking that are, you know, sex-based or race-based or things, these are shortcuts, right? Our brains do them because we learn them as we grew up in the cultures that we were in. And to try to check those assumptions every time you're doing anything in any type of interaction is very tiring and very taxing. And so our brains just try to help us by saying like, you know what the answer is, you know who this person is already, right? By like comparing to all of the kind of things that you sort of learned growing up. And also one of the things that's been the most important for me in my own journey is, is sort of realizing like you grew up in a place and in a way of thinking that it has all these like systems of oppression, right? I took the Harvard, I forget what exactly what it's called, but the Harvard like bias survey that's available online, that's free. And the place I scored the highest was gender bias, which like really surprised me. I was like, I'm a feminist. I've done all this like work, but those things can be really, really deeply ingrained. And so the first step is just awareness, right? Acknowledging, which I think is like a source of massive discomfort for, for me, for lots of people doing this work. And if you can sit with that discomfort, which we've talked about before, and you know, coaching can help with that. But I think it's a it's a really personal inquiry of like, separating that there's a problem here. And there's a way of thinking that's not good, you know, separating that and, and the changes you want to make to your own thinking from this makes me a bad person. And like, and I'm uncomfortable because of that, that it like is making me a bad person. So I think that's, that's one of the things just for me personally in, in the DIV journey of like just not bypassing the discomfort and going to like, well, we're going to just ignore this, but like acknowledging this is a problem and it's probably going to be a problem for the rest of your life, right? Like we're, this is so complex. We're not ever going to be in a place where like racism and sexism and disability, you know, is just fixed. Like now, now we're good, right? It's always going to be this way. I constantly evolve my thinking on this as well. I feel like both of you added so much insight into just how hard being intentional is on anything, on anything, like intentionally changing your life, intentionally changing your career, intentionally changing your habits. It is so hard because of those neural pathways, those shortcuts, right? And it's the same thing with bias. I think one mm -hmm. of the biggest difference is you'll have people who actively say, you know what, I need to go to therapy or I need a coach because I need to work on this. And I, and I want folks to also think, hmm, I know I have bias because everyone has bias. Everyone does. How can I intentionally work on it? Maybe a coach. Maybe a coach is a good way to do this. Or maybe there are certain exercises I can start doing to start training myself. And it's just, I, I just see so much overlap. And it's so clear to me. And I think it's because I've been so involved in all these areas, right? And I just like, I feel like it would be such a gift to the world if we can make everyone see that. <laughs> you know, like, everyone can do this. I promise. Everyone can do this, no matter where you are in this journey you can make the kind of change you need in your life to live a better, healthier, more fulfilling life and whatever that means to you. You both have started to pull back the curtain. So I'm going to ask for the full scope of Level Up Legal. When was it founded? What was its journey? Inspirations? I know this is a heavy question, so go for it. No, this is the, for us, the super fun stuff. So our partnership, and I mentioned in the beginning, our third partner who's not couldn't be here today, who is Lauren Cohen, our partnership was born of the 
pandemic in a way. It's sort of a pandemic love story. So we were each in our own individual practices in the beginning of 2020. And I had actually just left the firm that I was at to start my own business. I left Valentine's Day of 2020, which was three weeks before New York shut down and the stock market like halted trading because everything was going south. Then it it became, you know, very isolating because every, you all remember (laughs) you were there. We started having these coffee chats, just talking about, you know, on an anonymous basis, but things that we were seeing with clients and like, how would you coach on this, you know, topic or kind of what are you seeing coming up? And we noticed through those conversations that these themes that we've been talking about with lawyers, like the risk aversion, the perfectionism, like the the same things were coming up over and over and over. And so we thought wow, there's really an opportunity here for, you know, like a converting what we've been talking about with individual clients in very bespoke ways into a more structured like curriculum type of approach. And so we then spent a lot of time, I think more than a year, articulating what those were, you know, looking at like Julie referenced our training in energy management coaching as a coaching modality. And so we look at this through an energy lens, right? Like how are lawyers energy showing up and what are the most effective ways of coaching the the issues that typically come up for lawyers? And we boiled them down into what we call lawyer cognitive patterns. And so we've sort of articulated five of them. There are things like what you've heard us already talk about perfectionism, risk aversion, And then we built a toolkit of ways that we coach on that, specific tools, specific resources that we use for each of those, again, to the extent that they're harmful, right? And we know that they're helpful in a lot of ways. And we're not trying to like fundamentally change who people are. We're trying to give people tools to choose how they're reacting to the stimuli in their lives and the situations they find themselves in and and use those patterns to help themselves and to when they're helpful, and then to change and interrupt the patterns when they're not helpful. Just to piggyback on that, one of the main reasons we're doing this is to make coaching related tools and the framework that we've found to be so transformational for our clients more accessible, more broadly accessible. And that is to ensure that lots and lots and lots of lawyers and law adjacent professionals can benefit from energy management, but it's also to further the energy management related growth of folks that we've worked with because we work with clients who then raise their level of energy. They're more innovative. They see things in a different way. They are looking to color outside the lines. When you're steeped in low energy or you're situationally bogged down, you are in prime safety mode. Your nervous system is down. You're in survival mode. So you're not thinking in a broad strokes, innovative way. You're not really collaborating and bringing out the best of each other. So we want to raise our level of energy so that we can access that creativity and think outside the box. So we then would coach lawyers and then they would go back into their environment where they were around a lot of other people who hadn't gone through energy management and hadn't taken the time to change their level of awareness or their patterns. And I think that led to this kind of juxtaposition of feeling empowered and disempowered at the same time. And I I used this analogy with Tanya once where it was like, sometimes you realize that you've been in a dark room and your eyes have adjusted to the darkness and you don't even realize, I don't mean to say the legal profession is just darkness, but your eyes have adjusted to the darkness and you don't even realize it. And then over time, light starts to kind of pour in and illuminate what's been there all along. And so if you're sort of in this light space and the people around you are not, that can be really hard in and of itself. You can kind of feel like an alien within your space. And Tanya said her eyes never adjust adjust to darkness. (laughs) She was always... And I'm not even speaking metaphorically. I just have a really hard time in the dark. (laughs) When the lights are off, I don't see anything. And my husband's just like, this is not okay. Like, why can't you see anything? And I'm like, you have no idea. You have no idea, bro. It's like, it's, it's beyond. So we are actually in the middle of our spring launch. We came together and launched for the first time this 
product, which we call the Leveled Up Lawyer, which is this accumulation of tools and resources. We launched it for the first time in the fall and we had an inaugural cohort and we learned from that. We iterated on that and we're launching again. We're in the middle of our launch and you can find us at theleveleduplawyer.com. This podcast will come out right before our last masterclass, which is a free class that we're offering called Manage Your Energy, Reclaim Your Time. And it's specifically about time management, but spoiler alert, it's really all about energy management to get back your time, get back control over your time. And that is on the 28th of March. I want to thank you both for all your wisdom and knowledge and just for getting us all on board and and letting folks know that they can get coaches and it will make such a big, impactful difference in your lives. I highly recommend. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having us, Tanya and team. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at www.nycbar.org slash podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.